Good morning and Hosanna. Hosanna and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. What a wonderful and joyful invitation into Holy Week as the crowd shout their praise and welcome Jesus, not only as a teacher, not only as a prophet, but as a king come in God's name, one who makes a way for peace. Every Palm Sunday, every year, this is the note that we most readily want to reproduce, the triumphal entry, the joyful noise, the blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But Palm Sunday is not so simple. It is not so simple because Jesus does not arrive as a conquering king, but as a peacemaking king. He does not ride his war steed, but a humble colt. He does not rejoice at the sight of the city which he is about to enter, but rather he weeps. He will not sit on its throne, but he will hang on a cross. Palm Sunday is joyful, but its joy has a veneer that hides the true depth of the day the real reason for the joy, which is that Jesus draws near to his cross willingly for our sakes. And knowing what awaits him, he still weeps with compassion for the city which he loves and a world in dire need of his care. Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, Jerusalem literally means city of peace. And he says that this city of peace cannot recognize the things that make for peace. What irony that the ways of peace are hidden from the place of peace itself. Jesus weeps because he sees the coming destruction and oppression. He sees the pain and the sorrow which will be wrought. He knows the agony and the loss that is going to happen. He weeps, not for what awaits him in those walls, but he weeps for the very people who those walls will no longer protect. He does not cry for himself but for the many ways that brokenness and sin continue to mar the holy city, harm its inhabitants, poison our world. Today, this morning, even now, Jesus weeps. Still for Jerusalem, yes, but also for Toronto. Jesus weeps for a city called Toronto the Good, where goodness is known by the rich and not the poor. Jesus weeps for a place of immense diversity, where still the evils of racism and sexism thrive and seem to rule. Jesus weeps for a people who have been separated from family, friend, neighbor, and colleague for far too long. Even today, entering into this holy week, Jesus weeps for us, and this is a reason for joy. Why, why is this a reason for joy that our Savior weeps for us? 
we may recall the promise of a beatitude of Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus, in his life and ministry, exemplified for us the truth of these beatitudes. And so, as we see him weeping, we should remember the promise that he, too, will be comforted, that all who mourn will be comforted, and we should be curious to see and discover the comfort of Jesus in the midst of such sorrow and pain. Not only is today Palm Sunday, but it is also the final Sunday in the season of Lent. And throughout Lent, we've been considering parables that Jesus tells, stories which lay alongside other greater truths. And these are the stories that Jesus shares with his friends as they make this arduous journey toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. And today we consider the last parable in our series, which is also the final parable in Luke's gospel. Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly, He is in the temple courts now, and knowing what lies ahead for him beyond those courts, knowing what the people that he now speaks to have planned for him, he tells this story. He shares the story of a man who planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants, then went away to another country for a long time. When he knows that the vineyard has produced a harvest, He sends word for his share of the produce. But every messenger that he sends is abused and beaten, sent away with nothing. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Of course they will not. Instead, they devise a scheme. They will kill the heir and hope that that settles the matter in their favor once and for all. They throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. So we have this cast of characters. The vineyard owner, the servants, the son, the tenants, and we're led to believe new tenants as well. And you can fill in these blanks with me. The vineyard owner is meant to be God. The servants are the prophets and those who were faithful to God. The tenants are the religious leaders, and the the new tenants are others that God's vineyard will be entrusted to. So with all of those parallels for this parable in mind, let's take some time to walk through and unpack this parable together. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. Already, this parable could be quite loaded, perhaps quite troublesome. Some may read, even in this first sentence, that this is an absentee landlord, interested in earning profits off the backs of others, but not interested in being involved himself. We might ask, is God in some other country? Has God wandered off to other matters and allowed this great human experiment to unravel on its own? Is this meant to be the first lesson of this parable? Not at all. Note that the man planted the vineyard himself. He didn't just own some land, 
And while he was off in another country for a long time, he was not uninvolved or disinterested. He knows when the harvest has come, and he sends servants repeatedly to the tenants. So too, God has been intimately involved in creation. There's this beautiful image in Genesis chapter 2 of God getting God's hands dirty in the dust of the earth to form us. God walked in that garden that he planted in Eden, regularly speaking with the people there. And when the garden was abused, God continued to be involved, sometimes appearing as an angel, sometimes appearing as a pillar of cloud or of fire. But then, then it seemed like nothing. It seemed like nothing for a long time. There was the occasional vision, a whisper on the wind, but mostly nothing except for the prophets. The servants of God continued to come, continued to give voice to the vineyard owner's instructions, to call for the agreed-upon arrangement to seek justice and peace. God, too, has been involved, though sometimes seeming as if in another country for a long time. But the calls of the vineyard owner's servants, they were ignored. Worse than ignored, in fact, the servants were ridiculed, abused, rejected, and sent away. In fact, as each servant comes, the response seems to get worse, increasingly more violent, not just beaten, but now wounded, and always sent away empty-handed. In choosing to treat these servants in this way, the tenants are behaving as if the vineyard is their own, as if they owe nothing to the vineyard owner, as if because they could not see his presence, remember his care, he no longer deserved what was rightfully his. So too, the prophets of God for generations had endured ridicule, abuse, harsh criticism, violence, and even death. When the evangelist Matthew recalls Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, this is in fact Jesus' complaint. Jesus calls Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus announces, surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. No messenger of God can die outside the vineyard which is God's own. How peculiar a thing, the holy city of God, which cannot stand to have God's voice present within its walls. The chosen people of God, who cannot abide by the justice of the God they serve, cannot give to God what is due, who believe it all ought to be theirs. I think we still behave in these ways toward the people that God sends to us, toward the ways that God tries to break into our lives and challenge us to respond to him in the ways that we ought to. It's less violent, perhaps, but it's the same desire in our hearts. I think you could probably ask any pastor that you know if they've been hurt by the church, hurt by God's people, hurt by the tenants working the vineyard. And they'll tell you yes. 
My own call story has a significant part of it where I was resistant to becoming a pastor because I'd seen my home church wound a pastor, circulate a petition to have him removed because he was doing the work he'd been called to do. And some in our own community in the months since Phil has been gone have expressed their relief, their joy, in fact, at times. We are still quite harsh towards the servant of God. But maybe, maybe these wicked tenants just don't respect servants. Maybe they think dealing with the owner's servants is beneath them. What a generous thought on the part of the vineyard owner. Patient enough to send three servants and then kind enough to imagine that it is the position of the servants which has offended and not, in fact, the wickedness of the tenants themselves. So the owner sends his son, who he calls his beloved. This word should ring in our ears. This is the same word which elsewhere in the Gospels God uses to speak of Jesus. Then this is a word which in the time usually meant an only son, an only heir. I'm sure the parents among us would agree it's a bit mean to call one child your beloved if you have many. So this is meant to create a very clear parallel for us. The son is Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And when the tenants see the son, they hatch a plan to take the vineyard for themselves. This is the only son. If he dies, the vineyard cannot be inherited. Surely it is now within their grasp. And they kill the son. Was that Israel's problem? Was it really just that they didn't like dealing with prophets and they wanted to deal with God directly again? Because if so, they received the very thing they were looking for in Jesus. But he was treated in the same way. These religious leaders could not recognize the time of their visitation from God, as Jesus says in his lament, which we heard read for us. They cannot see that the heir of the vineyard owner comes for what is just and to bring peace. They would rather live in a suffering world where they feel close to the top than to choose to live in God's better kingdom, but to have to recognize that they are merely servants in it. No, they will kill the son, and perhaps the inheritance will come to them. I think that kind of mentality is still very popular in our world today, that we would rather be king or queen of some dumpster fire than to be a servant in the house of the Lord. We prefer the title and the prestige of of king, of in charge of our own lives, than we do the goodness of a lesser title in a far better world. How many billionaires continue to accumulate wealth for themselves rather than aid in alleviating the problems of our world? How many of us continue to save and save and save and store up and hoard even the fruit of the harvest, which belongs to the owner of the vineyard?
do we have that same problem? Is it really just that we don't like discerning God's voice within the church? That we don't like trusting in elders and ministers? That we don't like believing in the words of Scripture? That we'd rather wrestle out our faith face to face with God? Of course, we may do that. You may do that. But the Jesus we will wrestle with is the same Jesus found in the Scriptures, and it is his same Spirit which we discern together. So if we don't like the Jesus that we find in the pages of Scripture, who is full of both grace and truth, convicting of sin and forgiving most lavishly, if we don't like that Jesus, then we also won't like the Jesus that we're able to encounter on our own. Rather, instead, I believe we'll fashion a kingdom of our own making, we'll try to seize the vineyard as our own, and we'll create a Jesus of our own minds. We, too, will seek to kill the Son in the hopes that the inheritance will be ours. Jesus knows all of this. Jesus knew the schemes of the religious leaders' hearts when he first told this parable, and he knows the ways that each of us continues to abuse those who speak God's word to us or plan to minimize at best and quench at worst the sun in the pursuit of the kingdom which we have set our hearts on, the inheritance that we dream of, rather than the one that is for our good. And knowing all of this, Jesus still enters Jerusalem. Knowing this, Jesus still comes into our lives. Jesus chooses to allow himself to be killed by wicked tenants, even to be twisted and mangled by wayward Christians for the sake of the people who he weeps for for the city, for our neighbors. Yes, even for the sake of you and me. But the parable doesn't stop there. The parable also tells us that there is a cost to such rebellion. The vineyard is going to come under new management. The evil desires of the tenants will be stopped because they have killed the beloved son and new tenants will come in their place. Heaven forbid, the scribes and the Pharisees respond. Say it can't be so. And you and I, we might think that they're reacting to the fact that the owner would kill those who killed his son. But this is not the injustice that they grieve. They, I think, deeply understand this parable. And they know the meaning of Jesus' words. They know that giving the vineyard to another will mean that they no longer hold control of it. They no longer tend to God's people or harvest God's fruit for themselves. But Jesus assures them that heaven does not forbid, that this is in fact what it means when the psalmist writes, the stone the, builder, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does he mean by that? How are these two things related? Well, we might ask, how can a stone which the builders reject become the cornerstone? Logically, if the builders choose not to use it, then it will not be used. 
The only way that the stone the builders rejected can become such a central part of a building is if there are new builders. That's the only way. There are new builders for God's kingdom. And it's not the chief priests and it's not the teachers of the law. God himself has appointed Jesus as the cornerstone, joining many people into one and has entrusted that continuing ministry of Jesus, the continued care of the vineyard to all who follow him. There are new tenants of the vineyard, new builders of God's people, and in this action, God undermines every thought of power and domination and the continuation of how things have been for far, far too long. As you may recall last week, Dr. Akalazzi suggested that we, you, and I are in fact a composite of the two sons in the parable that she preached on from Matthew 21. In the same way, I believe that we hold places that are a composite of those old wicked tenants, fixated on living life as we would, ignoring God's calls for what is just, for what is his, even abusing those who come to us in God's name or bearing God's image. And we are also, in Jesus Christ, the new tenants who have now been entrusted with being more faithful stewards of that vineyard, caring more completely for the work of God in the world, acknowledging that all of this is for God's sake and not for ours, but that in being more faithful to the true owner, we also discover that which is for our good. This parable, ultimately, it is a parable about a God who is in control. Despite all the rebellious plots set afoot by the tenants in this vineyard, they will not prevail, no matter the cost. Despite all the wicked plans stirring in Jerusalem as Jesus enters it, plans to arrest him, even that desire to lay hands on him in the very hour that he shares this parable, even these will not accomplish what they intend. Despite all the evil churning through our world today, the evil of the religious and irreligious alike, the mortal and the supernatural, the powers and the principalities, still today the Lord of all creation will not permit them to accomplish what they desire. Jesus' entry in Jerusalem is triumphal, but not for the reasons that we would expect, not for the reasons that the crowds imagined as they ushered him in. He will suffer and he will die. The Prince of Peace will be killed in the city of peace, and knowing this, he weeps for the city which cannot even see where its help comes from cannot even remember the goodness of the God that established it. So it is in the sure and certain comfort that the plans which would see him hung on a cross will accomplish instead the liberation of God's people, not their continued oppression. That the owner of the vineyard will come and set all things right. So it is that Jesus presses on and in toward the week that awaits him, toward betrayal, arrest, trial, suffering, and death for a city that he loves and a world that he serves. Jesus walks toward the cross 
In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We want to leave you time to hear the Spirit speaking to you and speaking to us collectively as a church. So there are a couple of questions that you might consider journaling about or praying about or speaking with those that you're watching right now with or even making comments in the chat. So the first question is, Jesus weep for in Toronto today? And an invitation to take time to pray for the city that Jesus loves. And then the second question is, how do we continue to reject or resist the ways that God is calling us to? And to wonder what would it mean for you to accept God's invitation to a more faithful life today?